The Israeli war against the people of Gaza rages on more than 10,000 dead, more than 4,000 of them children. Ambassadors from countries around the world are being withdrawn from Israel. The one Palestinian member of Congress, Rashida Tlaib, was censored by the Congress because she dared to speak up for the people of Palestine. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to this episode of The Socialist Program. I'm your host, Brian Becker. Today, we're talking with Vijay Prashad. Vijay is the executive director of the Tricontinental Institute for Social Research. He's the chief editor of Leftward Books. He's a prolific author, most recently publishing a new book with Noam Chomsky called The Withdrawal, Iraq, Libya, Afghanistan, and the Fragility of U.S. Power. BJ was also a speaker at the Saturday, November 4th mass demonstration, the biggest demonstration in support of the Palestinian people in the history of the United States. That took place last Saturday, November 4th. BJ Prashad, welcome back. Thanks a lot. It's great to be with you. Thank you. I mean, that demonstration on Saturday, VJ, 300,000 people assembled in downtown Washington, D.C., between the Capitol building and the White House. It was massive. It was bigger than anything that's ever happened in U.S. history. I think it represents a sea change in public opinion. It reminded me of the way things changed in the 1980s when the struggle to boycott apartheid, the South African racist fascist government, turned into a global cause, a global crusade, and really spelled the end of apartheid over the next few years in South Africa. You were there. You witnessed it. You felt it. At the same time, we have one Palestinian member of Congress, Rashida Tlaib, and she was censored because she dared say in a tweet, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free, which is interpreted and then used by Congress, by the right wing in Congress, to demonize her as an anti-Semite. She spoke, she spoke eloquently about that. She said, no, what that really means what it means is that all of Palestine, all of historic Palestine, should be free of apartheid. Anyway, let's get started by talking about the new era that we have clearly entered in the last four weeks. Well, Brian, you know, when the various Palestinian factions crossed the border of Gaza with the rest of Israel and attacked the Israeli positions, that event itself caught a lot of people by surprise, not least, of course, the Israeli military, which, you know, only four years ago killed 200 Palestinians who tried nonviolently to march to the fence in the Great March of Return. The Israeli military then killed 200 people marching nonviolently, this time caught unawares. But in fact, that event, that day's events of October 7th, has not only changed the situation in Gaza, as far as the Palestinians of Gaza are concerned, they have been under sustained bombardment for four weeks now. But in fact, it's changed the relations in the region. You know, the balance of forces in the region greatly changed. In the period leading up to October 7th, there was, it seemed to be, at least to me, that there was a kind of inexorable rush to normalization of Arab countries with Israel. You know, in the 1970s, Jordan and, and Egypt, under pressure from the United States, made a peace agreement with Israel that was seen to some extent as an outlier. But then in 2020, in a, I think, pretty interesting stroke by Donald Trump, he announced the Abraham Accords, where Bahrain, Morocco, and the United Arab Emirates normalized with Israel. This was also quite a stroke. I mean, there was a price to be paid for this by other people. In other words, the United States effectively legalized, as far as the U.S. was concerned, 
the Moroccan occupation of Western Sahara as part of this deal. There was arms deals involved and so on. Well, the pressure was now on Saudi Arabia. Would Saudi Arabia normalize with Israel? And the U.S. did something interesting. There was the Abraham Accords on one side. And then the next year in 2021, the United States began to assemble another block. This block is called I2U2. The I2 being India and Israel, I and I, and then the U2 being the United States and the United Arab Emirates. These four countries were brought together in a block to think about increasing trade relations, building some sort of trade corridor between them. Not the United States, but at least the other three, India, Israel, and the United Arab Emirates, but overseen by the United States. And then at the G20 meeting in Delhi earlier this year, the United States and others announced the creation of IMEC, the India-Middle East-Europe corridor, which was to start in Gujarat at the port owned by Gautam Adani, who is a crony of Narendra Modi, the Prime Minister of India, and then to go across the waters to the Dubai port, across land into Saudi Arabia, up the old Hejaz railroad that would then end at the port of Haifa in Israel. By the way, that port also owned by Gautam Adani, the same man who is both a crony of Narendra Modi and owns several ports in India, as well as ports in Greece. This IMEC was to go from Haifa all the way out to the port of Piraeus in Greece, which interestingly, Brian, is owned by a Chinese company. But nobody wanted to talk about that. They believed this was going to be an alternative to the Belt and Road Initiative of the Chinese. This was going to isolate Iran and so on. And if indeed IMEC had come into play, building on the I2U2 project, this would have been, if Saudi Arabia didn't want to formally normalize with Israel, this would have been de facto normalization with Israel. That was the day before October 7th. When October 7th happened, and Israel began its you know, pretty grotesque bombardment, genocidal attack against the Palestinian people, over 10,000 dead, as you say, as we talk, half of them children and so on. The equation has changed in the Arab world. It is now really impossible for even a monarchy, you know, an absolute monarchy like Saudi Arabia, to normalize with Israel at this point and perhaps for some time to come because the people in the Arab world have a completely different opinion now. They're not going to allow whether de facto or de jure normalization. People are very upset. It's people's being upset, by the way, that also mobilized 300,000 people to come to the streets of Washington, D.C. They didn't come there necessarily because they have a political opinion about Israel or about Saudi Arabia or, or even the Palestinians. People are upset by what they are seeing and hearing, the number of children killed and so on. And Rashida Tlaib's tweet and then her statements are also motivated by the facts of what's happening in Gaza. This is not motivated necessarily by any prior project. You know, you got to leave space in politics for people to be moved as human beings when they see, you know, a place like Gaza, 2.3 million people squashed into a very small region. When you see people being treated like this, bombed like this, civilians not allowed to move around. You know, I remember, Brian, in the U.S. war, in Mosul against ISIS, there were 11,000 civilians killed. And the reason the numbers were not higher was because the people of Mosul were able to run into the countryside. They were able to escape from the city. In Gaza, there's no escape. People around the world are heartsick because there's no freedom of movement of civilians. In fact, civilian infrastructure is being bombed. It's the reaction to that that has brought hundreds of millions of people around the world into a sense of, of despair about what's going on. And that despair, as they've come onto the streets, has been channeled into a kind of politics. I think that's very important for us to talk about. But certainly, October 7th has not only changed the balance of forces in the Middle East vis-a-vis -vis the governments, but it's also created a new political dynamic on the ground. Indeed. I'm so happy you gave some of your thoughts on this, Vijay, because in the U.S. media, the presentation is Hamas is a terrorist organization and Israel is a country. 
As a matter of fact, in all of the media, including the New York Times, they only refer to the conflict in Gaza now as the Israeli-Hamas war. And Hamas is labeled by the U.S. government as a terrorist organization. And so you have a war between a country, Israel, and a terrorist organization. So the media has done this deliberately in order to frame the discussion. And so then the people are basically told, do you want to be with terrorists or do you want to be with this country that was the victim of a terrorist attack on October 7th? As if the Palestinian military operation on October 7th, whatever one might think about it in terms of the loss of life, what drops out of this is an understanding of why did why did Hamas do this? Why did the armed resistance forces in Palestine do this? And as you said, in 2018, five years ago, every Friday, people went to that same wall, that same area that was breached, and they had peaceful, nonviolent protests, and they were shot down. They were shot by Israeli snipers. Hundreds were killed, but thousands were shot. And so then five years later, it's not peaceful, it's not nonviolent, it's an armed attack. It caught the Israelis flat-footed. And what you're saying is that instead of looking at this as a struggle between good, thus Israel, and evil, the terrorist Hamas, what's the military operation all about? What was its purpose? And the day before October 7th, there appeared to be an effort by U.S. imperialism with the Zionist government in Israel to essentially finally liquidate the Palestinian question because if you normalize Saudi Arabia and Israeli relations and trade, and you do the same with the UAE and Qatar and the other Arab Gulf countries, as happened with Egypt in 1979, if all of the forces that supported the Palestinians are now basically normalized relations with Israel, that means the validation of the ultimate theft of Palestinian lands, a validation of the additional seizure of Gaza and the West Bank and Golan Heights, which happened in June 1967. And now as a consequence of this terrible war, those plans for normalization are gone. Obviously, Hamas felt this was a do or die moment for the Palestinian cause. And again, we're not saying this because we're camp followers of any tendency or faction or party in the Palestinian resistance. That's up to the people of Palestine to decide who their leaders are, but to understand what is this struggle all about. Again, I wanna just, before I go to a clip, I wanna, we have a clip from the Harry Truman Library, which I think is so useful. I mean, Rashida Tlaib is censored. The only Palestinian member of Congress is censored by a vote, I think it was 234 to 188. She censored a number of Democrats crossed over, voted with the Republicans to censor her because she said, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. Now, that means that she, as a Palestinian, and I think all Palestinians think that the Israeli project isn't anything other than an example of ethnic cleansing and of taking people from their homes and their villages and replacing them with other people. The Holocaust that was imposed on Jewish people in Europe was then used as a pretext to carry out this colonial ethnic cleansing and removal of the indigenous people of Palestine. Again, I want to go to the Harry Truman Library to give people a historical perspective. Harry Truman was the president in 1948. He's a Democrat. This is when the Nakba, the creation of the state of Israel, takes place. And this is clearly a colonial project. Listen to how Harry Truman actually talks about it back in 1948. We had several other uh, people in the country, even among the Jews, the Zionists particularly, who were against anything that was to be done if they couldn't have the whole of Palestine and everything handed to them on a silver plate so they wouldn't have to do anything. It couldn't be done. We had to take it in small doses. You can't move... Uh, five or six million people out of a country and fill it up with five or six million more and expect both sets of them to be pleased. I mean, from the river to the sea, that's six million people. Harry Truman says, well, we're going to clear them out. Okay, they lived there for thousands of years. These are their ancestral homes. These are their lands. We're going to just kick them out and replace them with other people. And Truman says, well, it's not easy. You know, people are not going to be too happy about that. And then, I don't know if you picked up on this, VJ, but the map says Palestine. 
The map says Palestine there. That's the map that Harry Truman was using. They knew exactly what they were doing. It's a cynical manipulation of the terrible trauma and Holocaust and genocide imposed on Jews in Europe by fascism, using it to basically carry out a fascist-like ethnic cleansing of the indigenous people in Palestine. And again, the U.S. was never motivated by altruistic reasons. I mean, most European Jews would undoubtedly have preferred to come to the United States if they were going to emigrate from Europe, not to a, a country in the third world. This was a funneling of people as part of a colonial project. So, you know, it's very interesting. In 1948, when Truman is making those statements, around that time, the forcible expulsion of many, many of the Palestinians that lived in historic Palestine was taking place. And a Lebanese historian called that the Nakba. His name is Konstantin Zurayek. The Nakba means a catastrophe. For Palestinians, in fact, the Nakba isn't something that just happened in 1948. There's been a permanent Nakba, an everyday Nakba, a Nakba that keeps happening day in and day out. Something quite fascinating, in 1977, when the Likud party won the elections for the first time, Ariel Sharon, the big general of the Israeli Defense Force, takes the agriculture ministry. Now, it's interesting, why would a general take the agriculture ministry? It's not that Ariel Sharon, you know, was interested in beetroots and potatoes and so on. No, it's through the agriculture ministry in 1977 that they begin to put in place the settlement project, that they're going to go into what they call Judea and Samaria and start to remove Palestinian villages from there and build settlements. This is long before the Oslo Accords of 1994, which effectively put in place Sharon's plan. You see, this everyday Nakba is something that has been going on for a long time. You have villages removed. You have the situation for Palestinians made so bad that it's impossible for them to remain where they are and live a sane life. The conditions of life are made more and more difficult. Well, in 1994, when the Oslo Accords were signed, this idea appeared that there will be two states. It was known as the two-state solution, that West Bank, East Jerusalem, and Gaza would be the Palestinian state, and then Israel would have the rest. Already, of course, this is a much diminished part of Palestine. Well, one of the parts of the Oslo Accord was safe passage between Gaza, East Jerusalem, and West Bank. That means Palestinians could move freely between these three parts of the occupied Palestinian territory. Also on the table was no settlements because this is to be the Palestinian state. The very next day after the Oslo Accords were signed, free passage was basically invalidated. The apartheid wall begins to be built around the West Bank. East Jerusalem increasingly was encroached. Safe passage between these three parts of the occupied Palestinian territory, not really permitted, and so on. So the two-state solution from the very get-go in 1994 became illusionary. Now it is almost entirely an illusion. If you go to the West Bank in particular, you'll see that it's impossible to imagine this being a contiguous Palestinian state with the number of settlements there are. Well, the other option, of course, is the one state, and that's where from the river to the sea comes in. You see, the one state solution suggests that you build one state from the river to the sea that incorporates Israelis and Palestinians, but they are not going to live in an apartheid situation. That means full secular and democratic rights to everybody. But this approach is absolutely anathema to the right wing, and in fact, most of the ruling class in Israel, which is you know, wants to create an ethno-nationalist or a religious nationalist project, creating a Jewish state where people who are Palestinians will be permanent second-class citizens, come back to the idea of the permanent Nakba. So the one-state solution is off the table, not because the Palestinians are not interested, but because effectively the Israeli ruling class is simply not going to permit it at this time. So what do we have? We have the Israeli ruling class for several decades committed to what I think of as the three-state solution. In other words, what's the three-state solution? If you go back to Harry Truman's map, you'll get it immediately. The three-state solution is Lebanon, Jordan, and Egypt. 
push the Palestinians across the Jordan River into Jordan and let them then go to Lebanon if they'd like and push the Palestinians of Gaza into the Sinai Desert in Egypt and take over the whole land. So, you know, there are two competing visions of from the river to the sea. And I must say, this slogan is used a lot even in Israel. In fact, the basic law has enshrined the map of greater Israel goes from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea. So there are two visions of this slogan, from the river to the sea. One is the apartheid Israel slogan, creating greater Israel from the river to the sea, which is going to be a permanently apartheid condition for any of the Palestinians who don't go to the other three states and then further afield. And then there's the second slogan meaning from the river to the sea, which is to create a state which is a, not an apartheid state, but a secular and democratic state where justice is established for all. Now, this second use of the state is mischievously labeled by particularly the Western media, but also by politicians as somehow meaning that the Palestinians want to bulldoze Israelis into the Mediterranean. Nobody is talking about that. Nobody is mentioning that. I was talking to some reporters about the march in Washington, D.C. They said, well, people were chanting the slogan from the river to the sea. I said, well, I also chanted that slogan. And then they said, well, that means you want to, you know, get rid of Israel. I said, no, I don't want to get rid of Israel. I don't think others want to get rid of Israel. What we want to do is to get rid of apartheid Israel. We want to overcome the apartheid conditions, build a secular democratic state. That seems to be the demand of a lot of people within Palestine. It's something that's on the agenda for people. We'll see if this is able to be established. But at least let people have a discussion and debate about it. You know, why can't there be an honest and decent debate about what could be a possible future? See, to keep talking about the two-state solution is to allow the permanent Nakba to continue. Because this gives a kind of liberal cover to what's actually happening on the ground. There's a phrase that I've heard many times from Israeli high officials. They talk about changing the facts on the ground. If they change the facts on the ground, their negotiating position is much improved. In other words, if they build all the settlements, whether they're illegal or not is irrelevant, build the settlements fast, those are the facts on the ground. After that, we can negotiate the situation. And I think that demonstrates that the two-state solution as an actual political project doesn't have any relevance at this particular time. And so from the river to the sea doesn't mean get rid of people from Israel and so on. I think that is not something that anybody is calling for, but to establish justice in that region, justice that is beyond apartheid. I think it's really very unfortunate and malicious for people not to want to have a discussion about this, but to make assumptions of what other people think when they use statements like that. The United Nations in its resolutions after 1948 said that the Palestinian people had a right to return. It's the UN. It wasn't simply PLO, Fatah, Hamas, any of the Palestinian organizations. It's a resolution of the United Nations. So in that sense, international law, that people who are ethnically cleansed have a right to return. And they also, you know, we come into this conflict, as you're presenting it, Vijay, that this is really about the two options. One option is apartheid, a Jewish exclusivist or Jewish supremacist state versus a state where all the people of different ethnicities, religions, cultures, nationalities live as one as equals. Those are really the two options in, in historic Palestine. And, you know, when you hear Benjamin Netanyahu talk about what the war is like for Israel right now, as they're blowing up apartment buildings, all in the name of self-defense, all in the name of self-defense, they say, well, this is Netanyahu's language. We are the people of light and they are the people of darkness. Now, isn't that a form of racial or ethnic supremacism? This is simply a kind of fascist line that one people are superior, one people are chosen, one people have been given this role in this land by God. They have a divine mandate. It's clearly racist. And all of the colonial projects, VJ, and you've written about this in Tricontinental Research for many decades, there's no 
example of colonialism that has been imposed on the people of the Middle East, Asia, Africa, or Latin America that doesn't include this heavy dose of, you know, white supremacy or European supremacy or fascist-like supremacy. I heard an Israeli general arguing on a French TV station the other day. He said, the French host said, well, you have to abandon colonization, meaning the colonization of the West Bank, the creation of settlements and taking over these lands that Israel seized in the 1967 war. And the Israeli general says, we're not guilty of colonization. This land belongs to us. Have you read the Bible? God gave us this land. I mean, it's like that. We are chosen. So the Palestinians are kind of there by mistake. And, you know, the other element of this that, again, the way imperialism and Zionism frames the issue that basically because people are in the U.S. are being spoon-fed this kind of propaganda is it ignores the reality that prior to the Zionist settlement of historic Palestine, Muslims, Christians, and Jews all inhabited this territory. It was their land. They lived in relative peace. Maybe everything wasn't perfect, as things rarely are. But there wasn't this kind of thinking, this kind of colonization, and this kind of ethnic violence and ethnic cleansing. So again, when you go back and you look at, can historic Palestine be a place where Muslims, Christians, and Jews live together as equals in peace? Well, just think of the whole history of Palestine. You don't have to make it up. You don't have to like fantasize about it. That was the history before the colonial project imposed this Nakba on the Palestinians. It's interesting because Harry Truman's map calls it Palestine. And in fact, it's interesting the, the naming practices. People consider themselves Palestinian Muslims, Palestinian Christians, and Palestinian Jews. That's who they were. They were all people of Palestine. Palestine as a name was the name of that region. It wasn't an ethnicity in any way. It was the people of that region. They were Muslims, they were Christians, they were Jews. And of course, they didn't all get along. But this new language, this language of the last couple of decades, you know, we saw this kind of language in the second intifada from senior high officials of the Israeli government, including Ariel Sharon. Very harsh language. Now we are hearing phrases like human animals. We're hearing phrases like children of darkness and so on. It's disturbing. This language itself is deeply disturbing. It's against the norms of modern civilization. One cannot think about people like that, the dehumanization. I was listening to the New Yorker radio hour where David Renmick, the editor of the New Yorker, was interviewing Yonit Levy, who's an Israeli television personality. And Yonit Levy, you know, basically said that 1,400 Israelis had been killed. And at the time of the interview, 4,500 or so Palestinians had been killed. And she said quite bluntly and straightforwardly that there's no moral equivalence between the killing of Israelis and Palestinians. And David Renmick didn't push back. He didn't question this. I mean, I was appalled that the editor of The New Yorker didn't feel the need to at least have a conversation about that and say, listen, you know, Ms. Levy, are you sure you want to say that a Palestinian life is not equivalent to an Israeli life? Is that really what you're saying? Just to confirm, you know, maybe she spoke in error, but no, he just let it go by. You know, I remember, Brian, in 1984, when the Union Carbide factory exploded in Bhopal, India, and 3,000 plus people died, executive from American Sinamid told the New York Times at the time that, look, this is a terrible thing that's happened in India, but Indians have a different understanding of human life. In other words, 3,000 Indians die in, in that kind of thing. Well, you know, maybe they think they'll be reborn. What does it matter? But if an American is killed, that's outrageous. The moral inequivalence of human life, you know, this international division of humanity, it seeps through this conflict. And what I'm trying to say with the example of the New Yorker is this is not just Israeli high officials who are in the middle of, you know, provoking people into war, talking to their soldiers, dehumanizing the so-called enemy and, and so on. This is people in the United States who are not directly 
part of this war who are quite cavalier about the idea that there's an international division of humanity. Now, if you and I, you know, walk down to David Renwick's office and challenge him about this, I'm sure he would say, no, 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 I, I of course believe that everybody's equal. But do you really? I don't think so. I think you actually believe that it's okay what James Kirby said, National Security Council spokesperson. There are no red lines to the Israeli war. We are not going to tell them not to kill civilians or to bomb Jabalia refugee camp and so on. They can do what they want. They can kill as many people because after all, maybe James Kirby believes that a Palestinian life is not worth the same as an Israeli life, You know, certainly not as much as a life in the United States. I mean, I remember after 9-11, George W. Bush said, everything starts now. There's no history to 9-11. And then he said, we declare a global war on terror. I remember thinking, how can you have a war on terror? Because that's going to be endless. I mean, you know, you have to have a war against an adversary, not against terror. And in fact, the Israelis have borrowed from the U.S. playbook in the post 9-11 era. They've been saying that October 7th is Israel's 9-11. They want to say that this is a war between Israel and terrorism. The synonym for terrorism is Hamas, which is why the U.S. media keeps saying this is a Israeli-Hamas war. You know, firstly, is it really a war? I mean, by and large, it's so asymmetrical and disproportionate. It's difficult to use the word war to describe the totality of what Israel is doing. It's true that around Gaza City, the Palestinian factions are contesting the movement of the Merkava tanks and so on. But when aircraft after aircraft flies over a territory which has no way to defend itself, no surface-to-air missiles that can hit those planes, no air force of its own. In fact, Gaza doesn't even have an airport, largely because of the nature of the Israeli occupation. You know, it's been a one-sided slaughter. And if this one-sided slaughter can touch anybody, it should touch people of sensitivity. You'd hope that somebody like David Renmick of The New Yorker would feel some sensitivity toward the great loss of life, if not of adults, at least of children. You know how people make a distinction. I personally don't find this distinction to be that compelling. You know, any life is precious. And just because children are being killed doesn't make it worse. Any life is precious. The killing of, of innocent adults is equally precious. After all, you kill an adult, a child is alive, the child is an orphan. How is that any better? The disproportionate killing of people should touch the hearts of people with sensitivity, but apparently not. And the reason it doesn't is because I think this idea of children of light, children of darkness, it's not just Netanyahu's you know, speech or it's this phrase, human animals. It's not just, a, this is a structure of feeling around the world, an old colonial structure of feeling that we haven't been able to uproot. It's the same structure of feeling that's there when people talk about structural racism in the United States, the way the police behaves, the loss of a precious life of a young African-American child doesn't motivate people as much as perhaps the killing of a, of a white child. Um, this structure of feeling of the international division of humanity, it is so powerful and it seems to be there not only if we set the politics aside, it seems to be there you know, across the way the media is covering this, it seems to be there certainly in the callous statements by high officials of the U.S. government saying we're, we don't have any red lines uh, for the Israelis. They can do what they want. Yeah, the racism of it and the hubris also go together. You know, I'm sure General George Custer was very sure that the Sioux Indians and indigenous people in that part of the plains would be, you know, shocked and awed by his presence, but that didn't stop Sitting Bull and the fighters of the indigenous people from taking care of General Custer. And, you know, when you think about the way both human life is deemed to be precious in one place in the colonizing part of the world and then not valued in the colonized part of the world, and that there's kind of this superiority and then you have superior weapons, which in fact is true. It's a toxic mix that leads policymakers to make very bad decisions. And as if, you know, you could just finally crush the Palestinians and then normalize Israel's relationship with Saudi Arabia and UAE and Egypt and the other main Arab countries. And then, boom, Palestine will be done. 
and you know what Harry Truman laid out, you know, we have to do it in small doses. Well, the final solution, so to speak, would have happened. But VJ, it's very unclear to me like what's actually going to happen in this struggle right now because the Israelis have this capacity to bomb and bomb and bomb, as you are describing, and kill thousands and thousands of Palestinians. If they've killed 10,000 already or 11,000 maybe today, it's about 130 kids dying per day. By the way, the U.S. media always, for a couple of weeks, was calling it the Hamas-controlled Gaza Health Ministry as opposed to the Gaza Health Ministry. So even as Biden said, we can't be sure if people are really dying in these numbers. I mean, the putrid racist cynicism. But that said, you know, America killed a lot of kids in Vietnam. I mean, two million Vietnamese maybe died. The U.S. between 1965 and 1968 during Operation Rolling Thunder, U.S. B-52 bombers using 2,000-pound bombs killed, according to the Pentagon's own estimates, about 1,000 Vietnamese civilians, villagers per week for 180 weeks, for three years, or 160 weeks. So 160,000. But it didn't mean the U.S. was going to win the war because killing civilians is actually quite easy. Defeating the enemy's military infrastructure is a different story. American soldiers who were in the bush, so to speak, fighting the National Liberation Forces or what the media or the U.S. soldiers called the Viet Cong, those U.S. soldiers mainly wanted to get home. They were going to be in Vietnam for a year. They wanted to come home. They wanted to make sure they had two legs, two arms, two eyes, if at all possible. And certainly they wanted to be alive. But their goal was to go home. Where the Vietnamese fighter was home. They were fighting for the end of the occupation of their country. They weren't going anywhere. And the Vietnamese, the National Liberation Front, had made the decision, we're going to fight and fight and fight. Ho Chi Minh said it in poetry. He said it in speeches. We'll fight, we'll fight, and eventually we will win. And I can't tell right now, Vijay, whether the Israeli Defense Forces are actually winning. They are killing a lot of people. They are turning the world against them and against their patron in, in Washington. But are they winning the war? Because if they can't win the war kind of quickly, I think the United States government will start to see the Netanyahu regime as a liability because U.S. imperialism doesn't care about Jews or Muslims or Christians. It cares about its geostrategic position, especially in this resource-rich part of the world. And you can see the tone is changing in the last 48, 72 hours where before there were no red lines, go ahead, do whatever you want to do, Israel. But now the language is the continuation of the current conflict as it's being waged is untenable. I think the U.S. imperialist policymakers, having engaged in hubris and racism, this toxic mix, are now confronted with a possible change in the relationship of forces that makes it impossible in a way for this to keep going unless the Israelis could really go in and wipe out Hamas. But it's unclear at all that they're actually impacting Hamas military infrastructure. I mean, it's interesting if we just stay with that for a minute, the military infrastructure. Hamas has been building up this infrastructure since at least 2007, 2008. The Israelis have tried to knock it out punctually every few years, you know, cast lead, permanent resolve, these operations, these names are all Israeli names, and was never really able to take them out. And they keep finding a way to resupply themselves. It's pretty incredible what the Hamas organization has been able to do. That's one part of it. Can they knock out Hamas? I doubt it. I mean, right now, the Israelis are surrounding Gaza City. They're making forays into the city, going in and out, raids and so on. I don't think they have the capacity to go in. And, and just recently, the Israeli general said, we don't seek to occupy Gaza again. Of course, they've always occupied Gaza, even when they, when they left in 2005. But what they mean is they don't want to keep a permanent military establishment inside Gaza. They prefer to just keep them at the edge. They say, we don't want to have our troops in Gaza. But the Palestinian resistance in Gaza is only one part of Israel's problems. It was interesting to listen to Syed Hassan Nasrallah 
of Hezbollah gave his speech and his understanding of the situation. You know, he made several important points, one of which was he warned the United States saying, look, you know, you have the capacity to bomb countries and so on, but you don't win wars. You were defeated in Iraq. You were defeated in Afghanistan and we will defeat you. You have 70 some warships sitting in the eastern Mediterranean. He said, if we want, we can strike them, but we are not striking them yet. You know, it is said that Hezbollah has about 100,000 troops in arms, you know, hardened fighters. Many of them had their most recent experience in Syria. So these are recent combat ready troops that are sitting there in southern Lebanon. Some of them have been engaging the Israelis. The Israelis fired back with white phosphorus. There's a report on this at Amnesty International. But Hezbollah is holding his horses. And Nasrallah said, look, we can go when we want to, but this is not the time. We are not ready to be able to win. We will go all in when we think we can win. I found that to be a very interesting speech. And I'm sure the Israelis watched it and rewatched it and studied it to understand exactly what Nasrallah was saying, because he was giving a warning. He said that if you continue this violence and if you come near destroying Hamas, we're going to enter the fray. In other words, if you go back to the military operation in Gaza, that can go as far as it goes. But if a message comes from Islamic Jihad, from Hamas and other factions saying that we're actually under some severe threat. That's when Hezbollah might attack. That's what Nasrallah said. But that's not all. Then you have the situation in the surrounding countries. You have the situation of the Palestinians in the refugee camps. You see, what the Israelis have to come to understand is there is no violent solution to solving this problem unless you kill everybody. If you don't kill everybody, Somebody is going to return after 10 years and fight you again. I well remember, Brian, after the U.S. bombed Iraq in shock and awe in 2003, and then there was celebration. Remember, Bush said, mission accomplished, and he was wearing the bomber jacket, and it's all over. Well, not quite, because what happened to the army of the Iraqis, the Republican Guard and so on, they took off their uniforms, buried them, took their guns, went home, and regrouped. And then they came back as these various militia groups that fought the United States for years afterwards, and in fact, defeated the US, and the US had to withdraw from Iraq. This is a memory that Nasrallah revived when he said, you were defeated in Iraq. Who were you defeated by? You bombed Baghdad, you bombed Saddam city, later Sadr city, you bombed Fallujah, you bombed Ramadi, you bombed Mosul. These cities were turned to rubble, and yet the people kept returning to fight you. Why? Because they refused to surrender. And I think, I don't understand why these countries, because see, there's so much imperial hubris in them, racist hubris. They believe that they can actually defeat people by force, but they don't understand. And this is the line from the UN resolution in 1960, the, the line from the UN resolution on colonialism. It said the process of liberation is irresistible and irreversible. You know, this is a line that the officials in Israel need to take seriously, in Washington need to take seriously. People are not willing to be subdued. They are unwilling to be humiliated. Unless you massacre everybody, they are going to come back. You're not going to have security. See, it's a, it's a fantasy. Let's say all the Palestinians are moved to the Sinai Desert. The Rafah border is open. Egypt says, okay, let's let 2 million people come and settle in the Sinai. Do you think sitting in the Sinai, the Palestinians aren't going to think, I want to go back and we're going to start some kind of operation to go back? There's never going to be security unless there is a lasting, sustainable peace accord between all the peoples. And the only peace accord is to dismantle apartheid. That's the only peace accord. You can't have another meeting in, in Oslo or in Madrid or in Dayton, Ohio, and bring, you know, Mahmoud Abbas to sit there with no credibility, really, to sit there and sign a document saying that, well, we're going to restart the process for the two-state agreement. It's not going to work. People want more than a Bantustan sitting at the edge of Israel. They want to live full and equal lives. And that you can't destroy that feeling by bombing people. 
they are simply not going to disappear. And I think that's the illusion. Believing that this is a Israel-Hamas war, in fact, deludes people into believing that if Hamas can be dismantled, the problem disappears. You know, people need to remember, Hamas was created in 1987. The struggle of Palestinian liberation starts in 1948. That means from 1948 to 1987, there was a dynamic for Palestinian liberation where there was no Hamas. If Hamas disappears today, Palestinian liberation is not going to disappear. It's going to continue. And that's what is, I think, misleading about the slogan, Israel Hamas. No, it's actually Israel's war to maintain apartheid and to prevent the liberation of the Palestinian people. It's not an Israel Hamas war. That not only is in error, but it also creates illusions. Illusions among whom? Illusions among the elites in the United States, perhaps, you know, sensitive and liberal people in Israel who are in a fog, thinking that their adversary is Hamas, when they don't realize their adversary is their own government. It's their own government and their own ruling class in Israel, which is unwilling to open the door to build a post-apartheid society in that part of the world. Vijay, I'm so glad you talked about this. The fact that this is, no matter what the maneuver, no matter how much violence is imposed on the people of Palestine, the struggle won't stop. And then the hubris again, this hubris racism, this toxic mix. The Taliban offered to surrender in November 2001 to the United States. In exchange for an amnesty, they said, we'll lay down our weapons Donald Rumsfeld said, we don't negotiate with terrorists because the subject had been framed like that. This was good versus evil, good versus terrorism. We don't negotiate with terrorism. And 20 years later, the Taliban defeat the United States and Biden has to withdraw. And if it wasn't Biden, Trump would have withdrawn. They, the U.S. lost. They lost because the people actually don't want to live under occupation. So whatever the maneuver there's another part of this, and we're moving to the finish line here, but I want to raise this. Julian Assange is in jail right now. He's been in jail for a long time. The U.S. is trying to bring him because he dared expose what the U.S. was doing and what the Israelis were doing. And so they want to put him in jail and keep him in jail the rest of his life. WikiLeaks in 2010 released a bunch of documents. Here's one of them. In the transcript, this is an actual transcript between U.S. government official and an Israeli, the Israeli director of military intelligence. In the transcript, Israeli director of military intelligence, Major General Amos Yadlin, tells U.S. ambassador to Israel, Richard Jones, that he would be, quote, get this, very happy, close quote, if Hamas formed a government in Gaza, quote, as long as they have no air or seaport, close quote. He added that Israel would then work with the rival Palestinian political party, Fatah, for the Palestinian Authority, to form a government in the West Bank and work to undermine the Hamas government in Gaza. In other words, a divide and conquer strategy. He said this in this intelligence cable that WikiLeaks Julian Assange revealed hours before the Hamas government was actually formed in Gaza in June 2007. The Israelis wanted this because they wanted, they felt it was a way of dividing the Palestinians and then they would be able to create a siege around Gaza. They wouldn't have to have settlements inside, but they would form a siege around it. No port, no airport, no seaport, no control over the borders. And that they would then from time to time launch military attacks, but basically from then on, because they had the pretext of Hamas as a government, they could lay siege to Gaza. That's 2007. How do we know it? We know it because WikiLeaks had the guts to re reveal it. These are actual documents. The U.S. media published them at the time. Nobody says they're not true. But Julian is in prison. The people of Gaza are being bombed. The American population, the public, is told, oh, this is a war between good and evil, between a country and terrorists. And then you see this kind of manipulation by the United States and the Israeli government. And obviously, and I'm going to end on this, Vijay, and let you have the final word. This is the endless racism, supremacist, you know, sort of hubris that comes from colonialism itself. 
always thinking the other side is inferior, thinking you can divide and conquer people, thinking ultimately you're so clever, you're so strong, you're so powerful, you're so rich, you're just so much better than the colonized victims that you're gonna win. And over and over and over again, the US is losing. Now they put all in with the Israeli government. And I believe that the days of apartheid in Israel or historic Palestine, which is how we should describe it, are like the days of apartheid in South Africa when the world finally turned in the 1980s. The days are numbered. And from the river to the sea doesn't mean the extinction or extinguishing or mass killing of Jews. It means the end of apartheid. And that as the world knows that these are the two choices, the world obviously is moving in the direction of democracy and saying no to apartheid. Anyway, I'll give you the final word. No, listen, I'm, I'm really happy that in this conversation, we've talked a little bit about the kind of psychological makeup of the ruling elites in these parts of the world. You use the word cynical to describe Joe Biden. You know, I think that's a perfect word. Heartless is another that I would add in. I think this conflict has demonstrated how completely out of touch the ruling elites are in places like Israel and the United States with even their own populations, let alone the rest of the world. I mean, they come across as people who cannot be taken seriously. You know, if you're not willing to have compassion for the death of civilians, I don't see why you should get respect as a leader. The very fact that Mr. Biden, for instance, followed the Israeli line to doubt the numbers produced by the Gaza Ministry of Health is a sign of ill health of the ruling elites of these countries. And, you know, it's interesting. The Gaza Ministry of Health returns with a list of names of those who have been killed with their ages. It's extremely moving to look down the list, but also an ID number. And I think this is what people need to reflect on. They have an ID number on the list. It's not an ID number given by the Palestinian Authority. It's not an ID number given by the Gaza Ministry of, of Health. It's an Israeli ID number. Anybody born in Gaza, in the West Bank, in East Jerusalem, under occupation of the state of Israel, has to apply for an ID number from the state of Israel. When people say, well, there's no occupation, I would like to ask them, if there is no occupation, why should a Palestinian child born in the Indonesian hospital in Gaza, born in Al-Shifa hospital, Gaza, why must they apply for an Israeli ID number? And why would the Israelis now deny the fact of the death of these people who have Israeli IDs? The cynicism, the heartlessness demonstrates to us that this ruling elite that's there is certainly long past its sell-by date. And we really need to have a world where people of sensitivity and care try to solve real problems in the world and not create these kind of violent situations which make the world feel slightly demoralized on the one side and desirous of action on the other. Vijay Prashad, thank you so much. Thanks a lot. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Thank you.